I'm going to continue the saga of my rather uneventful life. I feel kind of like Charlie Brown, you know, just sort of a ho-hum life that I had. Well, when I was about 13, my parents bought a small motel, uh, 10 rooms, actually numbered from 3 to 12, because numbers 1 and 2 had been made into a, a very small apartment. And that's where we lived from October or April to October, uh, a small kitchen, a small uh, living room office, and a small bedroom and bath. Uh, and I slept on a cot between my parents' twin beds. Uh, during the time that we were there, I learned how to make beds, I learned how to do laundry, clean toilets, and to paint. It seemed like we painted every other year. Uh, to tell you how long ago this was, the cost to spend the night, uh, if you were just by yourself, was $5. If there was two of you, it was $7. And if you were in uh, one of the big rooms where there was two double beds, that was $12. You know, and I kind of grew up with this because my grandparents had an even smaller motel with only four rooms. Uh, so I've been used to that. Uh, when I was 15, my parents bought an ice business. Uh, it's called Tip and Chip Ice. And uh, we had to bag these 10-pound bags of ice. And we, we sold them to small stores and campgrounds. And uh, there was a state park there and motels, places like that. So this was 1964, and this came with a, an old uh, one-ton stick bed truck that we would put a couple of freezers on uh, in the summertime and uh, deliver this ice. Well, during this time, school was boring. Uh, I did as little as possible and explored the, the world of girls uh, during this time. Uh, I played football, and that was when I was a sophomore, 10th grade, and I was designated the backup center, and I hardly ever played. So in 1965, I got my first car, a 1953 Ford that I paid $10 for it. And that year, I skipped football because it was more fun to just drive my car around. That is until I blew the engine in it, and that was the end of that. I had no football and no car. So life continued in this little small town on the shores of Lake Erie where I didn't really amount to much in my life anyways, or at least in my mind. But God had plans coming. Let's pray. Father, I give you thanks for your word. And Lord, how we can see that you are mindful of all of us. You know, even before we come to you, you're loving us and concerned about us and trying to draw us to you. Uh, sometimes we uh, easily answer that call and sometimes we uh, shy away from it, uh, maybe for years, maybe unfortunately forever. So Father, help us to look at your word and to see how we can be brought closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today's message, I'm going to concentrate on 1 John 3, and it picks up where chapter 2 left off. How about that? 
and the overwhelming theme is love, God's love for us and our love for others. And verse 1 starts off with a great statement. Uh, this is from the New Living Translation. It says, See how very much our Father loves us, for he calls us his children, and that is what we are. Well, this is referring back to what was written by John in his gospel in the first chapter, verses 12 and 13. It says, But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. So we get the right to be called God's children by believing and accepting Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So the rest of verse 1 in 1 John 3 tells us something else very important because it says, but the people who belong to this world don't recognize that we're God's children because they don't know him. Have you ever told someone that you're a child of God? And what was the response? You know, for me, it might often be, well, I thought you were Gus and Marion's kid. You know, and that's true. You know, physically, they're my parents. But the world is not able to think beyond this world. Because if you told someone you're a child of God, they might look at you kind of strange and say, okay, whatever. Because the world just can't get it. Because it can't understand what it doesn't believe in. Well, in verse 2, it says, Dear friends, we're already God's children, but he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears. But we do know that we will be like him where we will see him as he really is. Now, John had seen the resurrected Christ. He was there when Christ told Thomas to put his finger in the holes in his hands, and his hand in his side. John was there on the shore of the Sea of Galilee and ate with Jesus after the resurrection. So John knew what the resurrected Christ looked like. But the ascended Christ... The ascended Christ will have a heavenly body, the body he had before he came to earth, a spirit body. We will have the same. We'll have a new, unhindered body, no pain, no suffering, no tears, because we will be with the Lord. Verse 3 in the NIV says, Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure, meaning that Christ is pure, because Christ has been pure for all eternity. On the other hand, for us, there's no purity without Christ. When John used the word hope, he refers to it as more than just a wish, but something that he knows will happen. Okay, we have that hope that we will be like Christ. We've been guaranteed that. We know it's going to happen. Now, Paul refers to this in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, in the New Living Translation, when he says, Because we have these promises, dear friends, let us cleanse ourselves from everything that can defile our body or spirit, 
and let us work toward complete holiness because we fear God. So both John and Paul, what they're saying is, stop sinning. Okay, stop being like the world because it's sin that stands between us and God. It's sin that stands between us and purity or holiness. On verses four and five, this is what uh, John has to say. He says, everyone who sins is breaking God's law for all sin is contrary to the law of God. And you know that Jesus came to take away our sins and there is no sin in him. When Jesus died on the cross, all sin was put into him, past, present, future. All we need to do is to claim that cleansing. Okay, so when we say Jesus died on the cross for us, it's not more, I mean, it is more than just that glib statement. What we're saying is that while Jesus was on the cross, my sin entered into Jesus's body. Okay, my sin became part of him for that time. And that was the anguish that he had, was, you know, not, not the nails, not the beating that he had taken, and all, but it was the sin that came on him. Because he had lived for eternity with no sin, and now all of a sudden he had the sins of the world in him, physically. Whew. The work has been done by the only one that could do it. Jesus Christ. John 3.17, John said, God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. Well, in verse 4 of 1 John 3, it started with, everyone who sins is breaking God's law. Everyone. Okay? No one is above the law of God. And the day is going to come when we're all going to answer for our sin. Well, verses 6 and 10, or 6 through 10, pretty much tell a story in themselves. Okay, it says, anyone who continues to live in him will not sin. But anyone who keeps on sinning does not know him or understand who he is. Dear children, don't let anyone deceive you about this. When people do what is right, it shows that they are righteous, even as Christ is righteous. But when people keep on sinning, it shows that they belong to the devil, who has been sinning since the beginning. But the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Those who have been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning, because God's life is in them. So they can't keep on sinning because they are children of God. So now we can tell who are children of God and who are children of the devil. Anyone who does not live righteously and does not love other believers does not belong to God. <coughs> Those are difficult verses. Okay, I looked at several different translations and the message was the same in each and every one of them. John makes it sound like, you know, once you're a believer, you will be sin-free. You'll never commit another sin in your life. Well, 
We know that's not true because Paul said this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. He says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the worst. Now, Paul isn't saying I was the worst. Paul is saying I am the worst. Okay, if he was just saying I, I was the worst sinner, you know, before Jesus came into my life, but no, he's saying I am the worst sinner. He's owning it. He's talking about now, today. And so I own that too. Okay, I fall short every day, just like everybody else. Okay, because we just have a sin nature. It's still there. That's a part of the flesh that even though we try to get rid of it, it's still hanging on. You know, I've got some areas that I'm working on. You know, two steps forward and one step back. Sometimes it's one step forward and two steps back, unfortunately. But God's not finished with me. <laughs> Praise Him. He's got high hopes for me. He has great expectations for me. God asks us to turn from our wicked ways. But, you know, that U-turn that we want to make, sometimes it's really kind of wide. You know, it's not just a quick zip around. It's like a big, you know, like a 18-wheeler makes a bigger U-turn than you would on your motorcycle or in a car. And sometimes it's not even a U-turn. Sometimes it's more of a, a three-point turn or a, maybe even a four or six point turn before you get turned around. So back in John chapter eight, Jesus refers those that continue to sin as children of the devil. That's pretty harsh, but true if we have no desire to change. Okay, if we're looking to please, or excuse me, if we're not looking to please God, okay, then we have no desire to change. But John does give us a little bit of grace in verse 9 of 1 John 3. It says, Those who have been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning. I take that as recognition of the fact that I'm trying to not sin. <coughs> Some days I'm more successful than others, but I'm working at it. I realize that it's going to be a continual process in my life. 1 John 3.11, we're taken back to the original theme of the chapter because he says, this is a message that you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Jesus told us this in John 13, or excuse me, John 15.13. He says, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. You know, I mean, nobody can do better than that. And that's exactly what Jesus did for us. Okay, I mean, we hope that we're not called to lay down our life for our friends, but Jesus said that's the greatest love you can have. Well, John goes on in his letter in verse 12. He says, We must not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and killed his brother. And why did he kill him? Because Cain had, was been, had been doing what was evil, and his brother had been doing what was righteous. 
An evil life is going to cause us to do evil things. Okay, because that's our thoughts and our thoughts guide what we do. You know, I have to admit that I don't see how John 3.13 fits in here. Okay, because John says, so don't be surprised, dear brothers and sisters, if this world hates you. Okay, except it seems like the world would love us if we're doing evil, since the world is evil. So if we're doing good, then the world's going to hate us. But if we're doing evil, you would think the world would be loving us because they're saying, yeah, you're one of my own. Verses 14 and 15. It says, if we love our brothers and sisters who are believers, it proves that we have passed from death to life. But a person who has no love is still dead. Anyone who hates another brother or sister is really a murderer at heart. And you know that murderers don't have eternal life within them. So John is building on what Jesus said in the fifth chapter of his gospel. In verse 24, he says, I tell you the truth. Those who listen to my message and believe in God, or excuse me, and believe in the God who sent me have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins, but they have already passed from death to life. Two things Jesus says here. First, we have eternal life. And secondly, it says we have already passed from death into life. Okay, have means that it has happened. Okay, not we will gain eternal life or we will pass from death to life, but we have gained eternal life and we have passed from death to life. <coughs> Excuse me. In 1 John 3, 16 to 18 in the NIV, it says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. That's really well said, because actions speak louder than words. Okay. By the way, not from the Bible per se, but it is often written that actions speak louder than words. Okay, it doesn't tell us that word for word anywhere in the Bible. Okay, but love in this case is a verb. Okay, it shows action. Okay, it has to show action to be believed. This final passage from 1 John 3, John's trying to tie things up. In verses 19 and 20, it says, Our actions will show that we belong to the truth, so we will be confident when we stand before God. Even if we feel guilty, God is greater than our feelings, and he knows everything. He says we belong to the truth. Jesus tells us in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Okay, so if we belong to Jesus... We belong to the truth. Now, the Greek word here for confident means it's an inward certainty. It's an assurance. It's, it's trusted. It's confidence. 
So when we say that we'll be confident when we stand before God, we know that you know, we've got that, that we know Jesus Christ and that he's the one that's made the difference in our lives. So if we have Jesus, he stands with us before our Father. It's not like Jesus is back there saying, okay, you go ahead and you go on up there and I'll be back here in case you need me. No, Jesus is right there with us. That gives us the confidence, the assurance that we need. Nothing from ourselves can give us this confidence because it says God is greater than our feelings because our feelings can often let us down. Our feelings can often lead us in the wrong direction. So God's greater than that. If someone says, I'm going to just kind of go with my gut feelings on this, you need to beware, okay? That's a red flag that comes up, okay? Because you need to say, well, maybe we need to look into this a little bit further. Maybe we need to spend a little more time in prayer about this. We need to follow God and not ourselves because God's going to keep us out of trouble. I know that I will get me into trouble and then I'm going to holler for God. Help, Lord. Okay, I didn't bother to listen to you, but no, I need your help. And God's not going to say, hey, too bad, kid. You know, I tried to tell you not to do that, tried to tell you not to say that or go there or whatever. God's going to say, okay, you know, I'm here for you. Okay, it was ourselves that got us into needing salvation in the first place. Okay, because we can't do it on our own. Verse 21, New Living Translation. Dear friends, if we don't feel guilty, we can come to God with bold confidence. The only way we can feel guilty is we're lacking a closeness with God. Okay, because this doesn't come quickly or doesn't come easily. But that closeness to God comes through prayer and study and prayer and confirmation and prayer. Okay, how do we know if we're guilty or not? Well, we need to examine ourselves, search our hearts for anything that should not be there, and get rid of anything we find that it's really not of God. May not be an easy task. And we may not what we like what we see, but it's got to happen. Verse 22. If we have found ourselves not guilty and have that confidence, we will receive from him whatever we ask because we obey him and do the things that please him. Some may look at this as an endless meal ticket, okay? That's not what it is. Because if we're living our lives for the Lord, we're only going to be asking things that coincide with God's will. We're not going to be asking for, you know, that new fancy car or the bigger house they're building down the street or more money or more power or anything else. We're going to be asking for humility. We're going to be asking for new ways to serve the Lord. We're going to be asking for revival. Because all these things that we know the Lord wants us to be asking for. So we're going to be asking for things that are within his will, not 
our human will. Verses 23 and 24. And this is his commandment. We must believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Those who obey God's commandments will remain in fellowship with him and he with them. And we know he lives in us because the spirit he gave us lives in us. John's rolled this whole chapter into these two verses because they echo a conversation Jesus had with a teacher of the law. He was asked in, in Mark 12, 28, of all the commandments, which is the most important? And Jesus responded like this, the most important one is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is the Lord. Love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than this. It is all about love. Love God, love everyone else. I want to share the, the words to a song that I'm not familiar with, but it really spoke to me. It says, O Lord, our Lord, we praise you for your mercy. O Lord, our Lord, we praise you for your love. For every grace your kindness has provided to every soul who calls upon your name, for every grace your kindness has provided to every soul who calls upon your name. O Lord, our Lord, enthroned in highest heaven. O Lord, our Lord, enthroned in grateful hearts. Your love extends to every generation with joyful news of your redemption plan. Your love extends to every generation with joyful news of your redemption plan. It is only because of God's love that we have an eternity to look forward to. And he expects us to share that love with others. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word and how it's um, fresh to us every time we hear it, even if it's something we've heard over and over again, that, Lord, you make it fresh, you make it new, and I praise you for that. So, Father, as we uh, try to, to see how this fits into our lives, Lord, let us know that you love us no matter what. And once we have given our lives to you, that you love us. Sometimes maybe you don't really like us. You don't like what you see and how we live. But Lord, you still love us because that love is eternal. So Father, help us to show that love to others just like you tell us to. And to those that may be listening that, that don't know you, don't know that love, maybe they, they live in a world of, of hate. They live in a world that's evil. So Lord, let them know that now is the time for them to come to you. And now is the time for them to make a decision that's going to change your life. And let them know that, that they need to have Jesus Christ as the center of their life, not themselves as their center, or they'll, they'll never survive here or for eternity. So Lord, let them pray like this. Dear Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know I need a Savior. 
and your son Jesus is that Savior, that he alone can save me for eternity. I give my life to you. I ask you to forgive me. And I thank you that you love me and that Jesus loved me enough to go to the cross for me. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen.